I am Emily Lyons. In 2011, without a high school degree and with no money to my name, I decided to start my own business. Since then, I've built several multi-million dollar companies and I don't plan on stopping. Being a businesswoman, CEO, serial entrepreneur, survivor, and general life enthusiast, I'm endlessly jazzed by the business of life, especially the stories of extraordinary people I've had the privilege to meet along my own improbable journey to success. I don't think it's fair to keep that privilege to myself, and I think you deserve to be utterly lifted and shifted by these people too. All inspiring people are inspired people, so get ready to be inspired. So Lizzie Velasquez's story starts with a viral TED Talk she did back in 2013 that has received to date over 54 million views. The story behind her famous TED Talk originated years earlier. Lizzie was born with an extremely rare congenital disease, and because of this, she looks different. In 2006 began the cyberbullying, with a YouTube video being made about her titled World's Ugliest Woman that had over 4 million views and thousands of comments telling her to just kill herself. Lizzie came across this when she was just 17 years old. She responded to it in the best way possible, becoming a world-famous motivational speaker. If you aren't familiar with Lizzie, she is one of the most inspirational people I have ever met. Take a listen. So today I am speaking with Lizzie. Lizzie, welcome. Uh, hi, thank you for having me. So I, I'm, I don't know if I can pronounce your last name. Can you say it for me? Velasquez. <laughs> Velasquez. <laughs> it's said in many different ways, so I feel like it's just acceptable. Awesome. Always. <laughs> <laughs> so let's dive in. Tell us a bit about yourself and your phenomenal story. Oh, thanks. It's funny because I feel like when I when I'm asked like what my story is for me, I'm just like, I'm a girl from Texas who <laughs> wanted to make a difference. But the reality of that is so much bigger. I was born with a rare syndrome that doesn't allow me to gain weight. I wasn't officially diagnosed until the age of 25. Wow. Uh, I'm 30 now. And it was very unexpected. It completely came out of the blue from a doctor who I had been seeing. It wasn't just like some random person that was like, this is what you have. But I was born six weeks premature. Mm-hmm. I was my parents' first child. They went in for an ultrasound and the doctor said she has stopped growing. And so they had to do an emergency C-section. I came out fully screaming at the top of my lungs, <laughs> but there was no amniotic fluid around me. So they had no idea how I was like alive. Wow. <laughs> um, I was two pounds, 10 ounces. So my dad Whoa. said that if you put like your hands together, that's how small I was. I could like fit in their hands. So much so they had to go to Toys R Us, like down the street to get doll clothes oh my gosh (laughs) because the preemie clothes were too big (gasps) and I I tell them now I remember playing with them with my actual doll (laughs) I told them I knew this was gonna happen and I wanted to save you money (laughs) but I was born in 1989 and back then there was no google there was no let me hop online or let me look in this certain textbook and you know, see why this child has 0% body fat. My skin was very translucent. It still is where you can see the veins on my body. But I guess when you're born, there's all these tests that they do and every test came back normal. There was nothing 
wrong. I did have to stay in the NICU for a couple weeks and it was mostly just to keep me under an incubator Mm -hmm. uh, to keep me warm. But other than that, everything was completely fine. And even though everything was completely fine, I guess since the doctors really didn't know what was going on with me, they sort of just assumed the worst and told my parents that I wasn't going to do anything and I was never going to like really amount to anything, I guess. And they were going to have to really just take care of me the rest of my life. And I mean, they didn't even show me to my mom when I was born. They took me away and took an actual Polaroid picture And then took it to her and said, this is her. We wanted to show you in the picture first because we didn't want you to be scared. And she pushed it away and she was like, bring her to me now. And so my parents really were just like telling the doctor who's okay, okay, you know. But (laughs) to them, they were like, we're just going to take her home and raise her to the best of our ability. Mm -hmm. And that's what they did. They raised me so normally. My mom worked at a daycare at the time. And she stopped working when I was born. And instead of just sort of keeping me home alone and like sheltered, she decided to babysit other kids my age so that I could be around other kids and know that I was just like them. Mm -hmm. So she started watching my first ever best friend who we met when we were six months old, my cousin. And because of that, everything was so normal to Mm me. I mean, they said that when they would take me out, though, it was a very different story and it was a lot of stares and people asking them, why don't we feed your child? And oh my gosh. What's wrong with her? She's so small. I did get sick a lot when I was younger and mostly because my immune system was extra small. I went to a lot of different doctors and actually like a couple months ago, I was in downtown Austin with my dad mm-hmm. and we went past this random building and he was like, oh, we used to take you there to see a doctor. But they treated you so badly and they would just sort of like pass you around and look at you and just stare at you. And so we stopped taking you there because we hated what they were doing. Oh, which I was like, well, I bet they had to go through so many crazy things. Yeah. As a parent, that's that would be mind blowing to have to go through. I mean, my sister was born with cystic fibrosis. Mm-hmm. Both my siblings were, but when she was, they didn't know what was wrong with her. And when she was six months old, a, a pediatrician yelled at my my parents when they took her in saying like, well, you're not feeding her. She's malnutritioned. And it just like scarred my mom. Yeah, it's horrible. I mean, I my parents were young. My dad was a first year teacher at the time. He taught first grade bilingual and actually just retired after 30 years in education. Wow. But it was... It was hard. I mean, they didn't, I mean, now they're, they're always told like, you should write a book about parenting and do all these things. And <laughs> like, well, we have, we don't know what to say. We just did. We just took things day by day. There was nothing specific that we did, but there was lots of little things that they did. Cause once I started elementary school, everything sort of changed. And that was sort of my big eye-opening experience as Mm -hmm. a five-year-old because I was confronted with the fact that I look different. And up until that point, I was just busy. There was nothing different about me. Mm-hmm. And I'm really great. I'm really grateful for that. I'm grateful for the fact that my parents didn't send me in and say, oh, well, be careful because kids are going to stare at you or they're going to pick at you. Like they didn't send me with a sense of fear of something happening. And instead, I sort of just had to 
deal with it. Did they not expect it or they just didn't want to? Oh, wanna... no, they expected it. <laughs> yeah, they really expected it. Oh, They just didn't want to instill in me this sense of fear. Yeah. So mostly it was just, you know, it's going to be so great. And I think my mom felt better knowing that my dad was a teacher at the same school. Mm-hmm. And so a lot of the teachers knew of me and you know, all of that stuff. But it was very confusing. I did not understand why they didn't want to hang out with me or play with me because up until that point, everyone wanted to play with me. (laughs) (laughs) And then I started hearing the name calling and I got a lot of skinny bones and you look like a grandma and I'm with you. And I mean, kids have no filter. So (laughs) they're afraid of what they don't know. And I was in the same boat. I was afraid of what I didn't know. Why are they doing this to me? And so a lot of, it took a few years for me to be able to really speak up to my parents about it. I think mostly because I just, I wanted to avoid it Mm -hmm. and I didn't want to deal with it. Even though they knew what was going on, walking in the hallways to lunch or pee or whatever it was, was horrible because it was passing other kids who were either seeing me for the first time who weren't used to seeing me every day. Mm-hmm. And it was horrible. And I remember there were lots of times where my dad would either be walking with his class or just be walking and past us. And instead of just saying hi, like a normal dad that I wanted, just waving or, you know, just like the little head nod of like, I see you. Hey, (laughs) he would do a cartwheel and (laughs) every time he would do a cartwheel. And I was like, what is wrong with you? Why are you doing this? It's so embarrassing. And it wasn't until a few years ago that I was randomly thinking about it. And I called him and I was like, did you do those cartwheels because you were trying to take the attention off of me? And he said, yeah, that he was doing them so that even if it was like a minute, that I wouldn't be stared at, that he was getting the looks. So my parents have always been... Okay, that's amazing. Yeah, my parents have always been super, super incredible with everything. I mean, little did we know that life was going to be pretty crazy and not what we expected Mm -hmm. as I got older. But all of that being said, going from feeling like you're normal to then feeling like you're disgusting to then realizing you have to learn how to accept this body Mm -hmm. to then again, hitting your teenage years. And I always tell people, just imagine being 16 and wanting to fit in, but also living in this body that you cannot change. How do you cope with that? So Mm -hmm. it was just a huge, long, (laughs) weird roller coaster of a time. Mm -hmm. Wow. And did you ever ask your parents, like, why do I look different? I don't think I ever asked why. I think Because it was sort of this known thing with my family that you don't ask why. Because I was raised Catholic and we're very strong in our faith. And Mm -hmm. we knew that there's a purpose for everything. And there's a reason for everything, even if we don't see it right now. So I never, I've of course asked it to myself and, you know, to my friends and stuff. But I never asked it to my parents because I knew when I was born, they never asked why us. And they never said, why are we getting a child with all these, I guess, complications or unknowns. So I never really asked them that. Mm -hmm. And then when you were a teenager, was it harder or did it get? I mean, it was not fun. (laughs) Yeah. It wasn't fun. Teenagers are hard for everyone. Like I Uh, hated being a teenager. Oh my gosh. I feel so bad for teenagers now. But at the same time, I feel like I met my best friends when I was a teenager. So it's sort of like this, like it was good, but also like it was really bad. But I think at that time when I started high school, it was more Mm -hmm. of like, I'm a very stubborn person. Mm -hmm. And it's like, okay, 
I'm done feeling sorry for myself. I just need to like get on with it and figure out how to deal with it. And at that time, I got this random idea that I was going to join organizations. Mm -hmm. And I thought if I join organizations, more people will see me. And, And in high school, I didn't deal with bullying. Of course, it was very different as I got older, I think Mm -hmm. mostly because, you know, the same kids get older and they have more awareness and a little bit more respect as Mm -hmm. (laughs) kids do. But I still had to deal with a lot of people staring at me and whispering. And I found out again later, my friends were the ones who were dealing with it and protecting me from it. Mm -hmm. But I never had to deal with anything in person. But in my mind, I still felt stares and Mm -hmm. as any teenager does when they're walking the halls, you feel like everyone's looking at you. When in reality, they're all really just caring about themselves. (laughs) Um, And so I tried out for cheerleading and I made it and I was like over the moon. Yay! But it's so funny. I was so excited and I didn't look past wanting to wear the uniform. (laughs) So I didn't consider doing the actual cheerleading. (laughs) To practice, you have to work out. Obviously, I'm not athletic. I was exempt (laughs) from like everything in PE. (laughs) And so I was like, my parents were, are supportive of everything. They always (laughs) want me to like try whatever. But for this, they were so scared And my mom was like, are you sure you want to do this? And I was like, what do you mean? Of course, like I'm (laughs) going to do it. Like there was no thought in my mind as to why I shouldn't do this. And I made it and we were so excited. And it turned out that like everyone made it. But I was like still so excited that I did it. And I got really into it. And of course was like, I want to be the one they throw up in the air (laughs) because I'm fearless. (laughs) And because although I seem very fragile, I'm not whatsoever. And I was like, if I fall, I'm just going to get back up. Like there's nothing, Mm -hmm. you know, I'm just going to do it. That's a good bit of convincing to the other girls. I had to really ask my coach actually to sit down with everyone and just tell them basically she's not going to (laughs) break. It's fine. And so after that, I was being thrown up in the air and trying all these new things. And my coach would randomly come up and just pick me up in (laughs) the air and just walk around with me in the air. And so doing that, I built up a lot of confidence, Mm -hmm. even though football games were really hard because that was basically me standing in front of people saying, look at me, I'm different. And they could see my legs and my arms. And so even though I was wearing what I thought would protect me from all of that, the reality was it didn't. So that was hard. But I did that. I wrote for our school newspaper. I took photos for a yearbook. I did all these random things. Mm -hmm. And it was really good. And I was finally at a point where I was like, you know what? Life is good. Life is good. I have an amazing group of girlfriends who we met in sixth grade. And this was ninth grade. We've been by each other's sides through three years of craziness. And so it was good. And then when I was 17 and accidentally found the world's ugliest woman video, everything sort of just stopped. So what happened? You were just on the computer and you just randomly saw your picture? So you have to remember back then, it was when... YouTube was new. I want to say it was maybe a year or two old. Mm-hmm. And so it was real basic. It was, you know, the video you see. And then on the right-hand side, the, what's it called? Related <laughs> videos. Oh, yeah. And I had been, at that point, I had been telling my story locally, but I had asked, I was asked to be on my first national show when I was 13. 
And I was <laughs> I was on the Maury show. Oh no way. It was before baby daddy shows got really popular. <laughs> I always have to clarify that. But I was there. I was on I was on his show eleven times. Eleven times? Eleven times. It was crazy. I was wow. there all the time. Or they were coming here to like film me for an update. I had an incredible relationship with them, but I was there when they would film two episodes a day. And it would be like this inspirational episode and then the baby daddy episode. <laughs> and we'd be in our green room and like all of a sudden the camera crew and people yelling were just like running through the hall. It was an experience. You are not the father. Oh, yeah. Do you remember the band O-Town? Oh, yeah. Okay. So they surprised me with O-Town. <laughs> oh, no way. That's oh, yeah. Awesome. Yeah. They like serenaded me. It was right after making the band or whatever show they were on. And they brought me roses. But they didn't take the thorns off of this. Oh my gosh. So I was sitting there next to Maury while they're like singing and dancing on this little stage, like wincing in pain because all the little thorns were like I'm stabbing you. Stabbing me. Anyway, backstory to that. <laughs> so I was on there for the first time when I was 13. I had braces, I had big glasses. I was 13. And someone took a clip from that, which I don't know how back then, how they Mm -hmm. did that, but they took an eight second clip of it and took the sound out and then put that on YouTube and then called it the world's ugliest woman. Mm -hmm. And what I, I was listening to like Taylor Swift or something random. So I have no clue how that was even related to what I was doing. So I had looked over and I was like, that kind of looks like me, but it's not. And I mean, if I never clicked on that video, I don't know what I'm sure I would have found out about it later, but I clicked on it and it had over 4 million views. That's insane. Yeah. And thousands of comments. And it felt like as soon as I looked at it, it felt like the wind was kicked out of me. Oh my gosh. I know that feeling. So, And it's just like the most helpless feeling of all of these people are saying the same thing. And what were they saying in the comments? It was horrible. Oh my gosh, it was so bad. So some comments were saying, if you were going to be so ugly, why didn't your parents just abort you from the beginning? <laughs> some were saying, don't forget the bag to put over your head when you go out in public because people will go blind from your ugliness. There was a lot of kill it with fire. There was a lot of begging me to go find a gun and take myself out of this world. It was that bad. And I sat there disgusting. and I, I read them all. Not because I wanted to like just keep reading the horrible stuff, but I was so desperate to find someone who was standing up for me. <laughs> Mm-hmm. And no one did. <laughs> not no a single did. comment was standing up for you. No, not one. And there was pages and pages of them. So I just kept going through them, uh, just hoping. And of course, I was bawling and, you know. And at the time, I was in high school. So I lived with my parents and I was in my high school bedroom. And my computer, it was like my computer and then the door. And the door was cracked and I could see down the hallway and straight to the living room. Mm -hmm. And right there was my mom sitting on the couch. And I hadn't even thought of anyone else while I was looking at this. And as soon as she caught my eye, immediately I felt this sense of needing to protect my parents more than I needed to protect myself because I knew how helpless I felt in that moment. And I knew this would crush them, especially my mom. And she had got up and walked down the hallway and saw me crying. Uh, And she came in and I couldn't even tell her anything. And so she stood behind me and looked at it and 
lost it and was like, we have to get this taken down. Like, what do we do? Stop looking at it. Was she crying or was she just Oh yeah, angry? she was crying. No, yeah, she was crying. And I, I was so upset. I curled up in a ball on the floor Aww. and I just cried. And in my documentary that came out in 2015, the director interviewed a lot of my family Mm -hmm. during that time. And I didn't go to any of those interviews. And we had never talked about this before. And it was my first time hearing what they experienced mm -hmm. when they found the video. And for me, all I remember is me and my mom and my dad when he eventually got home. But they interviewed my aunt and she was just bawling. And she said that my mom had walked out of the room and called her and she couldn't even tell her what was going on. And she just kept saying, she found this horrible video. I don't know what to do. Can you come over here? And so my aunt ended up coming over here, over to our house. I don't remember that. Um, who was the person who put the video up? No idea. I still don't know. I don't think I'll ever know. I don't know if it was man or woman, kid. Just a there horrible, from. horrible human. Yeah. Yeah. So my dad got home finally and he wasn't, he didn't cry. He, he was my typical dad and he came in and was very comforting and, you know, it's going to be okay. We're going to figure this out. And then a little while later, he was like, you do know we're going to have to forgive him. Mm. Just say him. Uh, we're going to have to forgive him and all the people who said something horrible. And I was shocked. And wow. I was like, there's no way you can forgive them. I'm not like, how dare Like, no, mm -hmm. there's no way. And he said, we don't know what's going on in their lives and we wow. can't punish them for what they're saying. And it went in one ear, ear and out the other. Mm -hmm. And there was just no way. And eventually, you know, now fully forgiven and completely understand everything that those people did and completely forgive the person who originally posted it. But at the time it was horrible. And so I actually messaged the person, the user who posted it mm -hmm. and just said, you know, this is me. I have a condition, whatever. Can you please take it down? I'm going to try to get it, take it down. And they replied and said, no matter what you do, no matter how hard you try, I'm just going to keep uploading it again. What? Yeah. So also since YouTube was new at the time, there wasn't really steps that you could take to, you know, report it. All you could really do was hit the flag button underneath the video. And so we did that and just let it go. And I went back to school the next day and told my friends about it, but then said, I don't want to talk about it. Mm -hmm. Later that day, I found out that a lot of people at my school had seen it and no one said anything because they didn't want me to find it. Mm -hmm. So yeah, that's what happened. It was pretty crazy. <laughs> so what year was that? I was 17. So I want to say it was maybe my junior year of high school. So 2006. 2006. I think. And then you did your first, did you, how many years after did it take for you to start speaking? A year. <laughs> you started doing public speaking a year later. Yeah, by accident. I had no idea that public speaking was a thing. The thought of someone being a motivational speaker, no clue. <laughs> to me, speaking was being a teacher and presenting. I had already been planning on applying to colleges to major in computer engineering because that's such a big passion wow. of mine. Mm -hmm. Completely took a whole different road. But I think after that happened, my assistant principal at the time knew everything that was going on and I had a really great relationship with her. And I cannot, I can't remember if it was at the beginning of my senior year or the end of my junior year, but she basically said all the upperclassmen have to take um, like, 
PSAT or some sort of test. And the freshman kids need an assembly. And so would you be willing to tell them your story and how you've overcome bullying? And at the time, in my mind, I hadn't overcome bullying. Like I just had this horrible video yeah. made it. Like I I'm not in a place where I can <laughs> tell anyone it's gonna be okay because I'm not telling myself it's gonna be okay. Mm-hmm. And she said, I just I think this is something that's gonna be really great. And you don't have to answer me right now. Just go home and talk to your parents and think it over. And so my parents were of course super supportive and they were like, Yeah, you should do it and My friends were very supportive and they all said, please do it. We will go sit in the front row. We'll support you. We'll be there. And so I was like, okay, I'll do it. Not really thinking, how do you even do this? So I, the only thing I could think of to do was write out everything I would want to say, put it in a folder and take it up with me on stage and read it. And that's what I did. And I don't know what I said. I, I don't remember. But I took it up and I I was so nervous. I think it was 200 to 400 freshmen. Mm-hmm. And the assistant principal was like reassuring me. And she was like, it's going to be okay. And don't worry. Like if they're rowdy, there's teachers here that'll quiet them down. And in my head, I'm like, they're not going to listen to me. Like I'm their peer. I'm this small person standing there who doesn't even know really what she's saying. And I'm just going to be looking down the whole time. And so halfway through my speech, I sort of like when it was like an out of body thing, mm-hmm. like I was just so into what I was saying. And I realized like I like snapped back and I was like, it's so quiet. It is so quiet. So I looked up and everyone was just listening to me. Mm-hmm. And like connecting with me mm-hmm. and no one was making a sound. And it was like they were hanging on every word that I said. And so I put the folder down and I just started talking. <laughs> and in that moment realized I had been living this life where I was convinced nobody knows what it's like to be in my shoes. Mm-hmm. But while I was doing that speech, I realized they know what it's like to be bullied They know what it's like to feel Mm self-conscious. They know what it's like to feel like you're not good enough. And so I just started talking about that. And by the time I was done, I had never felt more confident in my entire life. And like, I was meant to be there. And it was this moment where it was like, my entire purpose in life just found me. And what can I do to make this happen. (laughs) How can I, I felt like I just, I needed to do it more. And again, this was my first speech ever. I didn't know what to do. And so there were kids who were super tough Mm -hmm. and they were coming up to me and they couldn't even look at me because they were so emotional Mm -hmm. and just hugging me and saying, thank you for what you said. Um, I think the biggest thing I took away was they related to me. And so I went home that day, (laughs) back to the computer (laughs) where I found that horrible video. And I Googled how to be a motivational speaker. (laughs) (laughs) I really did. And I read about the different ways that you can do speeches. I watch videos of speakers and I asked myself, do they walk around? Do they stand at a podium? Do they have note cards? Do they show a video? Do they... I watched all of it, but there was only so much that I could do Mm -hmm. watching this. 
So I made my first website that day. (laughs) I emailed local churches and organizations in Austin and basically just said, my name is Lizzie. I have the story. If you need a speaker, let me know. I'll do it for free. Mostly because I had no clue what I was doing. I just needed the hands-on experience. So that's how it started. Wow. So I first came across you, I think it was 2013 when I saw your, I think it was your first TED Talk. It was actually my second. Oh, was the it? first one I did but was like a high school one and it was on a way smaller scale. Was it, I think it was Finding Hope Again? No, 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 no. My no. TED Talk? No. Uh, how do you define Yes. That was the one. And I remember watching it and was just sobbing and sobbing after watching really? it because I just felt so bad for you that you had to go through this and that just the capability that people have to be so cruel. And I think just everybody can resonate with it, but there's those times when you just feel hated and ugly and, you know, and it just, I don't know what it was, but it just touched me so much. I, I must have seen it. I don't know, 10 times or something. Really? Yeah, I watched it and watched it and I shared it. And even so over the years too, because I just think it's just, it's so powerful that you're, you were able to go on and like, even in the video <laughs> or in the talk and you're talking about the positives of everything. Yeah. And I just, it really, you know, at the time, my sister that I talked about earlier, she passed away in 2011 and I had a really hard time afterwards and with depression and, you know, mental illness, just with the loss of her and a lot of hating life and hating the world and, you know, thinking of the suffering that she went through. And, you know, she was teased a lot growing up because she looked different from her disease and she suffered and then she died. And, you know, just how you were able to find the positives. And it really got me thinking about that angle. And, you know, even though it sucks so much that I lost her, I had her. So I, I, the fact that it hurt so much to lose her was because I had something so wonderful to begin Mm -hmm. with and I wouldn't change it for the world. And I was able to take that and, and there is positives on, on everything. Yeah. We look at it that way. And (laughs) yeah, how you went through, you're blind to one eye, correct? Yeah. 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 (laughs) You like to put people in that blank space. Yeah. On on my right side. (laughs) It's just like they're gone. How did you become blind? We don't know. My mom, wow. it's like she she tells the story so casually and I'm like, mom. So at four years old, they took me to the eye doctor because they realized that I was only wanting to write with dark pens or markers and wanting to just be really close to the paper uh-huh. uh, to see it. And so they're like, oh, well, maybe we should take her to the eye doctor. So they took me and that's when they realized that I was blind in one eye. And my mom was like, oh, okay, that explains it. Like, <laughs> no big deal. Like, oh my gosh. But it's it's actually the same doctor, eye doctor I still see today. He's the only person I trust with my eyes. And so I still go oh. to this little pediatric office with <laughs> all the toys. <laughs> you know, those little, um, the, the, the toys that you like do the little ring around? Yes. It's like full of those and like elbow chairs. And anyway, so that's when we found out, but we don't, we still to this day, we don't know if it was because of my um, syndrome or how it happened, but I don't remember ever seeing out of two eyes. The concept of seeing out of two eyes blows my mind. Hmm. I just don't understand it. I feel like you see way too much at one time. (laughs) What is the syndrome called? It is called neonatal prodroid syndrome. 
NPS for short. It's made up of two different syndromes. Mm -hmm. Um, One is lipodystrophy, which basically means I can't gain weight. That's it. The other one is called Marfan's. And apparently it's pretty common, but the type that I have is very, very specific and rare. So with Marfan's, it affects certain things. So the obvious is the characteristics of like having longer fingers, having longer limbs, my facial structure, just, you know, physical things like that. But it also affects my eyes, which might explain the blindness, my bones, not so much that they're breakable, but I guess just like the the shape of them or something. Mm -hmm. I don't know. And my heart. And my heart being the scariest. I look at it now as I'm glad I know because now we can have like a game plan. But basically, I run the risk of my aortic valve rupturing. So just sort of exploding wow (laughs) at any time and there is like there's a chance that you can get to a hospital in time but it's it's pretty unlikely so every six months I now see a cardiologist and there are steps if they start to see it uh, dilating Mm -hmm. a little bit you can be put on blood pressure medication uh, and they'll slow it down and you know monitor and stuff like that so I did my TED talk in two, in December of 2013. Mm-hmm. At the time, I really wasn't familiar with TED at all. Even though I did the TED high school thing, mm-hmm. I didn't think that that was like a thing. Mm-hmm. I thought it was just something they called it, <laughs> like, like that their school called it. Yeah. And so when I got the email to do TEDx Women, I ignored it because I thought it was Bam. <laughs> because I was like, I don't know what TEDx is. Mm-hmm. Like, this is weird. And they kept emailing me and they're like, we really want you to do this. And I had told my dad, I was like, I got this weird email to do this. And he's like, are you kidding? I read about this in the paper and I was like secretly hoping they would reach out to you. I was like, okay, well, I guess I'll do it. <laughs> um, and so I did it. And TED, the organization has a very strict rules for their speaker. Mm -hmm. Uh, So I started speaking really 2008. So this was 2013. So I'd been speaking for a while and had recently just started having a speaker's fee and slowly going into the world of making this my career. So I had my routine down of, you know, I don't turn in things because I usually just go off the top of my head. And so I was assuming to do the same thing for my TED Talk. And I couldn't. I had to turn in stuff. So I worked with someone to, you know, plan out my speech. So I planned it for three weeks in advance. And I I went and literally while they were playing this surprise intro video, America Ferreira actually introduced me. And I was just like, oh my gosh, it's crazy. Like, so cool. And I don't know what came over me, but I looked at the girl who I'd been planning with, mm-hmm. who I had only met in person twice. And I said, do you trust me? <laughs> and she was like, yeah, I trust you. And I was like, okay, well, I'm going to throw everything out that we planned. <laughs> I don't remember what we had planned at all. I also have no clue where how do you define yourself came from because I've never spoken on that ever. <laughs> I don't know how it even became a thing. <laughs> and so I just took a deep breath and I just said, pretend you're talking to your best friend. So I went on stage and I just spoke. So there's a part where I lose my train of thought And it's because I was just talking (laughs) and it wasn't planned at all. Anyway, so I do the speech, post it online. That was my last speech of the year. And so I thought, well, this was fun. Went home, ordered Chinese food, called it a day. 
now it's break time. January comes and it's uploaded and it goes viral within a week. And my whole life completely went to this new level of, I hate the word fame. I don't say that I'm famous. I just say that- I would say you're famous. I don't think so. I just say people know who I am. (laughs) And so it went to this whole thing of like more people knew who I was. Yes. Um, And it was the most, I just graduated college. I had actually been planning to take six months off to figure out what I was going to do. Mm-hmm. And I was like, yeah, that's out the window. Like, <laughs> this is it. And so the woman, Sarah Bordeaux, who directed and produced the TED event in Austin, mm-hmm. she and I didn't really know each other. And after it went viral, we were emailing me and I was like, this is crazy. I don't know what to do. So we went to lunch for three hours uh, and she had owned a company at the time uh, that was just her and two other women. And she was like, I'm going to Dallas tomorrow, but I'm going to call you. And she said, I have this idea, two ideas. One idea is I want my team to help you because I was being flooded with requests. And the second idea is I want to do a documentary about you, but I've never done it before and I don't know what we're doing. <laughs> <laughs> and at the time, I had my family, whenever we, whenever I agree to do stuff like that, we make the decision together, me and my parents and my brother and sister. And we had agreed like a month before we weren't going to do anything like that because a lot of them just really wanted to exploit me. And so I just had this feeling that this was the right thing to do. So I said yes to both. So we had this conversation. We took my parents out. I was like, we got to convince them. We took them out for Mexican food. We had a few margaritas <laughs> and talked it out. And they, we got in the car right away. They were both like, we have to do this. This is the right thing to do. So this happened in January. By March, we were like, we're going to do this. So we started a Kickstarter in April, the 1st of April to go through the entire month. I did mm-hmm. interviews every single day. Wow. <laughs> One, two, three interviews a day trying to raise money. I got an invite to go on The View, went on The View, announced the Kickstarter there. You know, we raised the funds that we needed a week before our deadline. That next month, I had gotten a request to speak in Barcelona for McDonald's randomly. (laughs) (laughs) And so I had all these speaking things lined up before we decided that we were filming. So Mm -hmm. we were like, we got to take the film wherever we go. So we were filming. Um, We immediately hit the ground running, filming all over the U.S. And then my first time going out of the country, we get to Little London, film there, go to Barcelona, speak. Our last day, my mom and Sarah sit me down and say, your doctor called and he has your official diagnosis. Mm. And I was like, oh my gosh. And I didn't talk at all. And they both thought I was mad at them, but I was just sort of in shock. And everyone has known that I've always said I've been giving so many wrong diagnoses. And so I will never believe it unless a doctor sits me down in a room, looks me in the eye and says, this is what you have. Mm -hmm. And they said, this is that moment. Mm -hmm. And then asked, it's up to you if you want this to be in the film or not. Mm -hmm. So I all of a sudden had to go from 25 years of accepting that I'm a question mark and a mystery to all of a sudden, one day, you're not going to be a question mark. Am I going to be a period or am I going to be exclamation point? (laughs) I don't know. And so it was a long flight home thinking about it. And I knew it was the right thing to do to include it. So we got the diagnosis, all of that. I never had time to process any of it. 
because we were so busy. It was like, okay, this is what you have. Here's the biggest news of your life. Now we got to get in the car and go to the airport and go do something else. So I was also having to now live up to, I have all of these new followers. Mm -hmm. They're asking where I am. What am I doing? So I'm having to be this inspiration for everyone else. Mm -hmm. Don't have time to find out that my heart can explode at any moment. (laughs) Just got to keep going. Yeah. And so it wasn't until we finished filming in September of that year, the end of September, that everything sort of just slowed down. Mm -hmm. So from January to September, I never stopped. And then all of a sudden it was just like, okay, I'm in my first apartment without a roommate. (laughs) <laughs> it was great for two weeks because I got to sleep. But then it was like, oh, hey, here are all your thoughts that you haven't processed. Mm-hmm. Now process Coming them alone by yourself. Flooding in. Yeah. Exactly. Because all of my friends stopped calling to invite me places because I was never home. And I hadn't seen them for most of the years. So it wasn't like I was like, hey, what's up? Come over. <laughs> You know, let's just catch up after all of this craziness has been happening. And I can't drive because of my vision. There was no Uber at the time (laughs) in Austin. So I couldn't go anywhere. Everyone, all of my family was at work and school. And so I was alone. And it was, I felt like I absolutely hit rock bottom. And so then I was hit with the guilt of a movie is literally being made about your life right now. And you were the saddest you've ever been. But I still have to keep up this persona online for this new growing audience that I felt like I had a responsibility to fulfill. Mm -hmm. So I had gotten a few months prior, I had a bad flight experience with an emergency landing. (gasps) And after that, it was just like, normally like I could, I was completely fine. But after that, it was like full blown panic Mm -hmm. (laughs) anytime anything happened. Uh, So my doctor gave me some pretty strong anxiety medication to fly with. Mm-hmm. And I only used it a handful of times. But when all of this was happening and I just felt, you know, the lowest of lows. Up until that point, I had never, despite everything, never in my life once thought, I don't want to be here anymore. And I started having those thoughts. Mm. And nobody knew. Nobody. I was it was scary at how good I was at hiding it. And so I started taking one. And it would just like knock me out and I would just sleep. And when I was sleeping, I wasn't overthinking. Mm -hmm. And so one turned into two, two turned into with a glass of wine. Mm. And it was just, there were times where I just, I don't remember at all. Was it Ativan? No, it was um, something with a C. Clonazepam? Yeah, I think (laughs) maybe. Or clonopin? Oh, clonopin. Clon- something clonopin. like that. I think that's the same thing. I think clonazepam. It probably is. Clonopin or something in the same. It was something with the C. I'm like terrified of it now. I was doing that and I was so good at hiding it. But there were times where I was just like falling all over the place and I just had bruises all over because again, I was, I was at home and it's not like I wasn't seeing my family. I was, but I was just good at hiding it. And so anyway, my, my family found out and I was so ashamed and what are we going to do? This is getting closer to the time where I'm going to have to go back to work and start promoting the movie and speaking and doing all this other stuff. And so it was, I finally just talked to them and basically said, this is what I'm feeling. I feel like I don't want you to have to wait for my heart to explode and I want to protect you from it. And so once I like let that out, 
you know, the conversations were Mm -hmm. able to be had and the healing began. Mm -hmm. And my mom was like, why don't you get a dog? Mm -hmm. Why don't you get a dog? And I thought about it. And I was like, I don't know, I'm never home. But then I started thinking if I'm meant to have a dog, a dog will come into my life. And one did. And (laughs) my dog Ollie came into my life and he 1000% saved me because I now had this responsibility. Mm -hmm. I had to get out of bed every morning because he's depending on me. Mm -hmm. And so it helped me. Oh my gosh, so much. It made traveling so much harder (laughs) leaving him, but he completely saved my life. What kind of dog is he? He's a Shih Tzu. How did he come into your life? He, um, a family from our church uh, was looking for a home for him. And he had been in three different homes before he was a year because he was, yeah, because he was too hyper. Um, And I got him and he's completely attached to me. And oh my gosh, he will not ever leave my side if I'm... (laughs) next to him he's all about me but he he came into my life and he was just the greatest savior I could have ever asked for oh how long ago was that I would say that was about I got him I think in 2000 2016 2016 yeah and since then how have you been oh my gosh so much better well I hid this for so long Mm -hmm. nobody could know because I was now this motivational speaker that people knew and I was always happy. And then I started realizing I cannot keep this up. If I'm going to stay doing what I'm doing, I have to be real. Yes. Which is so hard in the world we live in because mm-hmm. we live in this social media world where nothing is real. Mm-hmm. And so I've made it my mission now to be as vulnerable and raw as I possibly can, no matter what it is. Mm-hmm. And so I wrote my fourth book after all of this was happening. And it was a big decision. Do I include it? Do I not? And I decided to. And it was just this whole breakdown chapter. And then the next chapter was how a dog named Ollie saved my life. So it was it was really, really great for me to be able to really that was my first step of letting it out. And so that was that was super helpful. But then it was like, okay, I need to be more honest about this. So I started posting about it more, mm-hmm. talking about it more. And the reaction was so overwhelmingly supportive. Mm-hmm. And in my head, I was like, oh, I'm going to lose credit, I guess, credibility. Like, mm-hmm. never one's going to be like, well, no, you're not that inspirational anymore. But it wasn't that at all. It was, thank you for saying this. Like, you are a reminder that you're human and it's yes. real and it's okay to be knocked down and you can get back up again. So ever since then, it's sort of like my thing now. I love how open you are with your posts and Thanks. your videos. And I see, I, I remember the other day, there was something, you'd had a bad day and your mom came over and brought you some stuff to cheer you up. And he did. <laughs> it's just, it's so relatable because we all have bad days. And, you know, from the outside, it, it would look like you have this amazing life with millions and millions of followers and you travel the world and you're a renowned speaker but you still have problems and you're still open about it. You don't hide it or gloss it over or make it yeah. this appearance that it's not. You're raw and honest. I mean, 2019 has been the most challenging year I think I've ever had. Mostly just because ever since TED, every project I did was just happened to come my way 
right after the other. So I never had this period of time of when something was done. Okay, what do I do now? Because I knew what I was doing next. And it was for so long and it was so constant. And I had so many people around me who were helping. I had a publishing house, I had a writing agent, I had my regular everyday team, I had speakers bureau, and they were all located all over the place. And Mm -hmm. so there was a time where I would be on conference calls and not saying anything and listening to people scheduling my life. And that's how it was. And so I would just have to look on my calendar and say, oh, this is what I'm doing today. So I'm doing tomorrow. Mm-hmm. And then you reach a point where those relationships are ended and mm-hmm. it's not because something bad happened. It's just, they're done. So it turned out that they all sort of ended at the same time. Mm-hmm. And it was, it was okay for a little while, but then it was like, I feel like I'm back to square one because I did everything on my own for years. Mm-hmm. Even through college, I, w- I was going to school full time Monday through Thursday. I'd get on a plane Thursday night, go speak, work on my first book on a plane, do my homework in a hotel, go back on the weekend and wow. do it all over again. So I had gone from doing everything on my own to having all of these people sort of do everything for me, figure out all the logistics mm-hmm. to now it's all back on me. And so that was a really, really, really big adjustment. Mm -hmm. I faced a lot of denial Mm -hmm. from people that I reached out to, to work with. (laughs) Oh, really? Yeah. And, you know, that's never a fun pill to swallow. No. (laughs) Why? Uh, What? In what regards were you like to partner on videos or? People to help me with speaking. Mm Mm-hmm more like a speaker's bureau type thing. Okay. It was a lot of, well, you haven't spoken that much this year. So Hmm. you've been speaking for so long and we have this fear that no one's going to want. Basically, you've said everything you need to say already. Hmm. So what else can you say? What other message do you have? And then it's just like, well, I don't know. I don't know what other message I have, even though I know that I have so much more yes. that I can say and share. Your constant but, story, even with the yeah. videos of you're not alone and the new ones that you're reinventing and, you know, talking about changing the, what society thinks of ideal beauty. And Oh, oh my gosh, I went crazy with that one. <laughs> your rant. <laughs> my rant. It's so difficult of me to have a rant. It's not even like I'm mad. It's like, yeah. I need to empower you. <laughs> <laughs> I know. So I'm like, this is not a rant. <laughs> yeah, it's not at all. But I felt I felt so strong in calling it that. I love how things are slowly changing with the idea of beauty and, and beauty being more about different, you mm-hmm. know, people that mm-hmm. are unique. And that's what's beautiful. It is. And I've been very fortunate to meet a lot of different celebrities who have been so genuinely kind and mm-hmm. so genuinely into the idea of using their own platform to reinforce the importance of vulnerability and natural beauty and, mm-hmm. and all of these things. And I think we get so caught up in the media of seeing people who are, I guess, fake and filtering everything and, you know, like this person did this or a cancel culture or yes. drama or whatever it might be. But there are people out there besides me who do have larger platforms than I do, who are wanting to take part in this 
movement, I guess, of positivity. Mm-hmm. Who has been some of the, the great ones that have impacted you that you've worked with? Oh my gosh, Tori Kelly. Mm-hmm. singer oh my gosh I was like her big I've been following her since <laughs> she started on YouTube mm-hmm. and I was surprised to my team set it up for me to meet her in during South by Southwest of March of 2014 and she wrote a song for me inspired by my TED talk um, and so it was just a super amazing moment but we became friends after that and really getting to know her and really seeing how she's not this this person who's grown so much um, with her music and, you know, performing on bigger stages. And she's not about having to show her body mm-hmm. to be liked. And she's very much proud of her faith. And to see that and to witness that and to see how strong she is in that, it's been amazing. Sadie Robertson, of course, has been another one who mm-hmm. everyone knows is just a motivational person. In general, Allie Raisman, the gymnast, she, oh my gosh, has blown me away. Her, she's just so, so genuine in Um, taking a stand, not only for herself, mm -hmm. but speaking up for others. And of course, her situation is very different Mm -hmm. from mine for the things that she is speaking up about. But I think it's a lot of younger people who are really just doing amazing things. And even, um... Ashley Graham. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I met her and she was so sweet and was came up to me and was very excited about my TED Talk and, mm-hmm. and super amazing. And I was about to start an interview, so we didn't have that much time to talk. Mm-hmm. But talking to her, it's, it's an actual supermodel who is <laughs> very much, again, wanting to spread this message of positivity. Mm-hmm. So what's your mission from here? So... I feel like, you know, when you have, like when you were in school and you had a whole bunch of homework or like a project mm-hmm. and you just kept putting it off and putting it off <laughs> and then you finally did it. It's like, mm-hmm. why didn't, what was I doing? Mm-hmm. I feel like I'm in that space right now mm-hmm. of, you know, feeling so sorry for myself all year. Like, well, what am I going to do? Everyone's telling me no. So now I'm like getting back into this sense of creativity and storytelling to where I haven't felt like this in a long time. And so now it's this excitement of, I can do this. (laughs) I can do this. If it's meant to happen, it'll happen. And so right now I've always had this super, super, super big dream to do some sort of a kid's series. And I want all of the main characters to either have a disability or come from a different background. Oh, I love it. Because when I was in elementary school, once I got older, my dad would go and introduce me to my class on the first day of school. And it took down this barrier of unknown and it helped with bullying. And so there's lots of kids who don't have that. So I want to be this person who is their introduction to wow. their classmate. I love that. I want to do it so bad. I get so excited thinking about it. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh, you're doing just so much good in the world. Thanks. Where can people find more about you? I'm all on social media. Most of my handles are just little Lizzie V. <laughs> <laughs> little Lizzie V. Well, yeah. thank you so much for chatting with me. You are just so beautiful in every way. Oh, thank you. I appreciate it.